How do we deal with people's questions about our appearances? That takes up space. That takes up time. It's all these intersections, right? It's like, boom, check. Okay, we can relate on being brown people. We can probably relate on the immigrant experience up to a point. But then sexual orientation comes into the picture and you're like, oh, shoot. Where is this going to go? You have no idea. Bienvenidos to Los Bookies Podcast, a podcast for queer Latina bookworms who love queer Latina stories. We are your hosts, Adrian Gasson Garcia, aka AGG, and Sergio Lopez. Back in 2018, nine gay Latinos from across the US of A got together in Washington, D.C. and established Los Bookies Book Club, a book club where we reviewed, critiqued, and fell in love with some of the best books written by mostly queer Latina authors. We saw ourselves in so many of these stories, and we had some of the best conversations on queer and Latina identities, family, relationships. We loved it so much that we decided to level up and create Los Bookies Podcast to talk about the books with the authors who wrote them. We first came across Alejandro when we read his first novel, The Town of Babylon, as part of Los Bookies Book Club, which we all love, by the way. The Town of Babylon was a finalist for the National Book Award, as well as a nominee for the Pan America Open Book Award and the Aspen Literary Prize. His most recent novel, The People Who Report More Stress, published by Astro House earlier this year, is a stunning collection of humorous, sexy, and highly neurotic tales examining issues of parenting, systemic and interpersonal racism, and class conflict in gentrified Brooklyn. Welcome, Alejandro Varela. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So, OMG. There are many times while I was reading this book that I started to think, Am I a stressed out person? But before we dive deep, we want to invite Alejandro to read an excerpt from the people who report more stress. Definitely will. And I will say that I am a stressed out person in general. So there, yeah, there you go. Okay. I am going to read from the titular story. (laughs) Titular. What a funny word. Um, uh, The people who report more stress. The evening is tepid and sunlit, typical of August in New York City but the cold in my bones is late winter. I'm on my way to buy a new phone, too weak from weeks of radiation treatment to walk the remaining 12 blocks. Three empty taxis zoom past, their on-duty lights taunting me. I wait for a familiar neurochemical heat in my chest and face that doesn't come. Even the audience of restaurant goers dawdling across the street does nothing to me. Some of my composure is an unintended side effect of being an enervate survivor. Some of it is calculated. Cancer reoccurrences are likelier in people who report more stress. I force a smile that I hope will dupe my body into thinking I'm happy, or at least keep the cortisol at bay. I don't give up. I step further into the street and throw both arms in the air. A dare. A taxi stops. Straight ahead, I'll tell you when. The driver is a chatty, mustache man who keeps a neat carriage and immediately discloses that he's from Kerala. He praises the weather and laments cops who U-turn. He wonders aloud if I, too, am Indian, then Pakistani, then Palestinian, then Mexican. The conversation doesn't rankle. Instead, I'm intrigued. No one ever mentions Palestine, casually. The driver's passing remark takes on an air of protest. I explain that my mother is from El Salvador and my father is from Colombia. After all, it's true. From the latter, he references a famous drug dealer, a pop singer, and a soccer player. But he says little of the small Central American nation. Pupusas, right? At a red light, he broaches the topic of children. I have two, he says. Me too. Very lucky we are. They are home with your wife? With my husband, actually. Oh, says the driver. 
The car's hum is louder in the ensuing quiet. Months ago, I might have changed the subject or pretended to take a call instead of outing myself. But evading the truth requires energy and leaves a pernicious mark. The fear of honesty, however, is momentary, like a steep roller coaster drop. This freedom is becoming addictive and makes me wonder about all of my inhibitions, past and present. Has this sense of liberation always been so readily accessible? Have I given my fears too much weight? Surely society shares the blame. Wait, I'm doing it again. I'm overthinking instead of, every day, different people in my taxi. That's what I love about this country, the driver says, like a paid advertisement and double parks outside of my destination. The storefront is blue glass, including the heavy door, which requires both hands and a wide stance to open. The air conditioning is gale force. The smells of new plastic and carpet freshener invade my senses. A man with a frosted beard and a lumbering gait arrives like an aged tree. He's wearing standard khakis and large eyeglasses, the kind I've come to associate with the 1970s. He reminds me of my father, but not in appearance. My father is short, stout, and still has perfect vision. Every man who should be resting instead of working reminds me of my father. That's such a great piece there, Alejandro. You're really able to capture the immigrant experience, how difficult it is for immigrants to come to this country. It's so easy to be othered. Well, but that's the thing about, about being other in different spaces, right? Is that you have to constantly be thinking of, and how do I answer this? And what's an innovative way to say, I mean, we could be thinking about like relativity and a combined field theorem, but instead we're wondering how do we deal with people's questions about our appearances? That takes up space. That takes up time, energy. It's all these intersections, right? It's like, boom, check. Okay, we can relate on being brown people. We can probably relate on the immigrant experience up to a point. And, but then sexual orientation comes into the picture and you're like, oh, shoot, yeah. where is this going to go? You have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah story yeah, of my life. Beautiful. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I actually read this book twice because the first time I read it, I just picked it up and I was so engrossed in your stories, the characters. But it wasn't until the middle and towards the end that I realized that the stories were interconnected. So I went back to reread to figure out if there was anything that I had missed from the first round. And I was wondering what made your decision to write it in this manner and not in a linear way? So I approached each story in a silo, if you will. I wasn't thinking about how it connected to the previous or the next. I wasn't thinking about a short story collection. I was initially, as is the sort of nature of this career, I was a short story writer, so I just was trying to individually publish each one. And if I could get a few published, then I knew I could then try and sell them as a collection. At some point when I was trying to sell the entire collection, I realized it was important that I don't, that I not be too repetitive, that there be some sort of thematic symmetry or continuity, and it was very apparent to me that Eduardo and Gus were the central protagonists or the protagonists in most of the tales. And then it became, they were the arc for the book. Their relationship, even when it's not front and center, is there sort of as a safety net in a lot of ways. And I do leave a few times the relationship, but I think most readers could imagine that when Gus isn't there, he's still there somewhere, right? Being supportive or not taking up too much space. But then, and then the funny thing is the collection got rejected many times. I couldn't find anyone to buy it. crazy to me. I couldn't find anyone that was interested. I got a lot of nice rejections. People just kept saying, you know, I love it, but I don't, I'm not the champion for this. I'm not the champion for this. And we can talk about 
the myopia and maybe even the the racism of the industry that they just couldn't see themselves as champions for this and they couldn't relate to it they kept saying but they loved it and they were anyway but i tried to put them together so then i went through and i was like okay 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 the kids have to if the kid appears here they have to appear here and they have to think of their age and i started doing math and i was like, okay Wardo and gus have been together for this amount of time so then i you know i was doing all that and really all these acrobatics to try and make it all make sense and then i was like you know what we're all the multiverse is the craze right it's like there is a there is a world in which there are more than a dozen queer public health working people latinos who are also named eduardo i was going to go that far but it, it could be different <laughs> names but i was like i actually believe that if we did the work in some way shape or form and looked there would be a dozen eduardos who are queer latino and do public health work in the united states alone and we're asking y'all to come forward now right <laughs> yeah please and uh, dm me and so i thought you know what i am going to treat each story as its own world and when they line up that's great for the reader and when they don't it's okay i so i took the pressure off myself and then went and the, did the work of like, disentangling the stories just enough so that they could stand alone but you know because they had so many similarities i i had to go through and make sure that like if i introduced the water the orgas i didn't reintroduce them mm-hmm. we looked at another facet of that life it's so funny because i could just picture you in a room with that red string trying to connect all the dots trying to figure out who's who and in a way the second time that i read the book i was kind of doing the same and that's when i started realizing I think that we're dealing with a multiverse. So I flagged that for Sergio who dismissed the idea right away. And then a few days later, he was like, "Oh no, I think this actually is a multiverse." We came across one of the interviews that you did where you do talk about that, and there was a sense of validation that I did feel <laughs> about like, "Oh, this is how brilliant Alejandro is that he's able to create this multiverse of universes of all these characters with interrelated stories." Yeah, I did read them as silo stories. Like they're all just a bit different, but like the multiverse theory does pad out, but it took me a while to get that these stories were connected. I will tell you that the original title for the book, the working title, the one that I wanted that my editor dissuaded me from was The First 200 Years of Eduardo was the name of the, of the collection. And that brought into the idea was around um a kind of a sociological public health theory around how long it takes for information to come into our consciousness and then for us to act on that information. And I talk about that a little in The Six Times of Alan, the story of the therapist, and he explains that theory to his friend and or his friend explains it to him, I can't remember at this moment. But that was the idea. The funny thing is that the next two books that I sold, the fourth one is called The first 200 years of alex Ooh. and i'll tell you about that later you heard it here here so then how did you get to the people who report more stress title the final story that i just read from that was published in the boston review a couple of years ago and we were stuck for a title and the editor there oh my god his name i'm blanking on right now he said well, why don't you think of some other ideas and i shared it with my friend lisa chen who is a fantastic writer and she liked the people who report more stress because it was a line in the story and she said what about the people who report more stress right and then not the once it was in the collection as a title then we it was always a possibility as a title for the collection nice no uh, so i want to bring us back to the book just because there's so much that we do want to dissect from the stories 
Eduardo's identities play a huge factor in how he experiences and navigates the world. His age, religion, being gay, sexual preferences, class. Why was it important to highlight his identities and how they intersect? Do they somehow enable or contribute to his relationship with how he copes with stress? Okay, so I'll answer the second one first. Absolutely, the identities do play a role because these identities are hierarchies in our society. That's the only reason they really exist is to conquer and divide us, right? And we're sort of seeing that a little bit in the way that we are taking back gender identity and expression to I think what it was meant to be to begin with, which is just being, just being, not identifying one way or another. And so I was basing that a lot on the research, the public health research around the stress of racism, the stress of discrimination of any kind. And so we, all you have to do is look at the various hierarchies, whether it's gender, whether it's class, whether it's race, ethnicity, culture, national status. These are the things that we walk around with every day that pull us up. They're differences and they only, they only need to be differences, but we treat them as barriers. And that's when it becomes stressful because we start apportioning out resources in society based on those differences. And then suddenly to be my skin color isn't just a trait. It isn't just you know, something visual. Now it's like, hmm, it determines where I live. It determines how you treat me, whether I get the benefit of the doubt in a conversation, what job I'm going to get, how my children will be treated. It comes with all of these assumptions. And so the nature of living in a multicultural society like the United States, where we treat people based on these immutable characteristics and sometimes mutable, but our, our differences and we use them to keep us apart, that is stressful. And it's the kind of stress that kills. Mm -hmm. People often think of, oh my God, this massive stressful thing happened in your life, a trauma. It has the potential to reverberate and contribute to your poor health or to your health. But it's the everyday death by a thousand cuts that we see now is the reason why the United States is one of the most industrialized nations in the world. And we have the lowest life expectancy of that group of countries. It's the differences. It's that we treat them as barriers instead of celebrating those differences. Yeah, you do talk about the movement of like the immigrant experience coming from another country to here where it's super prosperous with a lot of opportunity. But once here, the change of how folks navigate their own health, like it's extremely impacted, even though like you're coming to this country that has this American dream that we lift up so much, but at what cost? I mean, you cannot, you cannot live and we'll just take capitalism, but you cannot live in a capitalist society and have great health. It's not possible for a population because cap capitalism says that the most important thing is profit. If it will reduce your profit to make sure people are healthy, to give people what they need, then it suddenly becomes anti-capitalist to be human. And so it, it really isn't possible. So it's a, the American dream in that way is a myth because in order to climb that ladder, you have to let certain things go. And that certain thing is usually community. It's your family, it's your friends. And if you are the lucky one that then everyone points to and says, hey, look, they did it. That means everyone can do it. But if they did it, then that means they are the exception. And who did they leave behind? And those bonds are now sort of frayed as a result. Interesting. That's, uh, you're stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so throughout the book and in, in the multiverse, Eduardo tells us that he's half Col Colombian, half El Salvador, and you're half Colombian and half Salvadoran. How do you see yourself in Eduardo? I am Colombian and Salvadorian. And I, I, the reason I bring it up in most stories and in almost everything I write is honestly to represent so that people don't forget. 
And what I, that excerpt that I read from where the taxi driver was like, oh, I can tell you about Colombia and Shakira and this and that and the other thing. But he's like, in Salvador, I'm not sure. Wait, pupusas, right? It's because it's exactly that. Colombia gets uh, much more attention or I've noticed in my life growing up. And so I do that a little bit for my mom, just to remind them that El Salvador is here to stay. And I, what do I share with Eduardo? I share so much. But like I tell most people, I borrow the shapes and the outlines of the people in my life and my experiences. And then I fill them with things. I mean, this 12 or 13 plots in this collection, I mean, these are things that have never happened to me, but they did happen. I mean, they, they, I am queer. I do identify as queer. I am Latino. I am in, have a background in public health. So I borrow th those shapes and outlines and then fill them with other experiences. Do I share some of the politics of Eduardo? Sure. I don't think I'm as confused or conflicted as he is, but the that's the joy of writing for me. There's no reservation in my writing. I can really cut loose and say what I want to say through my characters. In real life, I don't go around telling people that like their diabetes is because of dispossession of culture and genocide. You know, it's true, but it's I don't talk about that in that way. But Eduardo gets to because he's in his head. That's the joy of, of the of the interiority of, of narration. And it's it's so great because one of the things I notice is there is a difference between how much Eduardo actually thinks and what he says out loud. I feel like that is so relatable. I think some of us, I'm gonna say maybe some of us in this room, we if you if you were socialized or if you were led to believe that you don't have a seat at the table or that you can't participate or there were barriers to participation in conversation, in society, in, you know, in, in any way, you don't stop caring about what's happening around you. You're still observing. So what you end up doing is thinking and overthinking the things and becoming a bit of a reporter for society. But the thing is you don't have an outlet for it. And so suddenly I have this career where I have an outlet for 40 plus years of, of witnessing. And I am, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful to the reader who doesn't mind that I'm in some ways giving myself therapy on the page, but it does, it does allow me to share that analysis and my critiques of, of what I've noticed. And I don't think I've had always the opportunity to do that. And I think lots of us don't. And so we end up in social situations where on one level, we're participating, there's eye contact, and I'm saying the things in response to the things that you're saying. But in another way, I'm thinking about all the ways in which, what does that person really mean? Mm -hmm. And where are they coming from? And what's happening over there? And are people judging this and blah, blah, blah. And that's what happens, I think, when, you have to, when you're forced to stay in your head, you kind of live in your head for a while. And it's hard to get out of that. That's a pattern. Yeah, no, and I feel like um, power dynamics definitely plays a role in, um, kind of the way that Eduardo interacts and what he says and what he doesn't say. And it also like attributes to like his stress, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the the sort of wonderful thing about animals or living things is that our instinct is to survive and we are social above all things. So anytime we're not being social, I actually think we are suppressing a desire to be social or we have been so damaged by society as it is that we are retreating but it's an act, it's an active process to retreat. And so Eduardo, like I think most of us, really does just wanna participate, mm -hmm. but is aware of his position in society. And I think it's difficult to fully be free, free to be yourself, right? Mm -hmm. to, to interact if you are like, 
I know I'm not technically supposed to be here. You know, mm -hmm. even if the act of showing up is really empowering, that's still energy. Mm -hmm. Like it shouldn't be an act of liberation to walk into a public space and raise your hand. But sometimes it feels mm -hmm. like it is. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I want to celebrate that, that moment. But I also am like, y'all, we need, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that standard is very low for us. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And so I, I wanted to talk about that a lot because I want us to be aware that that's what, what's happening is that we need to celebrate our small victories and then also push for like more victories, bigger ones. No, it, I think that's so beautiful. And it's so interesting because like not only is he able to see his own position, but the position of others, right? And how he relates to those positions. Yeah. So I, I think that I always think of it, my, of Eduardo and Andres in Babylon and the Jose Maria in the next book and like, these are, these are people who sort of straddle the middle of every spectrum. Mm -hmm. To be mestizo is to have white European and indigenous forces inside of you, both of them. No one wants to talk about that because there's no, that racial category doesn't exist usually. Mm -hmm. And you're forced to pick ethnicity, but not race. But those are the two that you would pick, but then you can't really pick Native American or indigenous because that's not the Native Americans that we're talking about. Exactly. And yeah. so then it becomes a sort of complicated calculus all the time, even to just identify yourself. But, but I would be lying if I said, yeah, I have it rough, but I know who has it rougher, right? Like that whiteness that is inside of me is a, is, gives me undue and unearned privilege in society all the time. And I know who I have it better than, and I have it worse than other people. So it's, it's kind of being cognizant of that, right? Like I'm queer, but I'm not super femme. And so I know who's gonna get picked on first in the room. It's probably not gonna be me, I'll be fourth or fifth. And so, so, so it's all of, those, all of those things, right? Like I, my parents, uh, I grew up straddling the line between working class and poor. And now I live a very comfortable life, but I have the memory of that. So I'm in the middle, right? My yeah. kids are gonna forget that. If they continue to do well, they will, my biggest fear is that they won't have any solidarity with working class folks. Yeah. And so, it's that sort of idea, right? Like I am the middle generation to an immigration and like full assimilation with who's gonna have no memories of abuelo and abuela. And um, so, yeah, so I think it, it's my job and all of us who fall into these middle spaces to hold on to both. Mm -hmm. And in a way, bring those two together, not for peace, but also just as kind of like a, a record and yeah. to, to keep talking about that. Yeah. I love that you talk about that because I think that's something that like I've also struggled with, but you refer to it as like class jumping which I think is great. Is the book cover, is that what that guy is doing? Is he class jumping? And then also, how have you dealt with class jumping? So to start with, the, the cover is, uh, it's, it's yellow and it's a kind of three cells of what looks like, you know, like a cartoon. And it's a guy in a suit jumping off a cliff. And then he's in the middle cell, he's in a, he's midair. And then the third one, he reaches a cliff, but he's just barely holding on to it, right? I had asked, a friend of mine, Aisha Tandiwe Bell, who is a fantastic artist, love her. We were in residency together at the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. This is the idea that I have for it. And then Aisha drew it. And then I showed that cover to my publisher, Astra House. And I said, this is the idea that I have. And they found an artist who kind of made it what it is today. And I'm embarrassed. I can't off the top of my head remember the name of that artist. But yeah, so that's where that idea come from. It is this very notion of class jumping, but it's also just this kind of, you're, you're dressed the part, you're ready to do this, mm -hmm. but you cannot quite stick the landing, mm -hmm. right? You're still, 
there's something about the experience that's still making you struggle. If you look at my, you know, if you look at the different parts of my life, you would think, oh, this guy's got it made. Like, what is he worried about? But it's all those things I told you about. You cannot suddenly escape how you were socialized and how, you know, the sort of patterns of your brain and how you process stress and see, read the room. And so, yeah, that's what I tried to communicate in that cover. Yeah. We're actually going to pivot now and just talk a little bit more ab about you. This, this section is called Chismeando con Alejandro. I'm curious, when did you first realize that language has power? Sure. I've been thinking about this, this idea of like, when was my first time realizing, you know, and I, I honestly, I think it's a cumulative experiences of being the child of immigrants. You are always interpreting and translating for your parents in every way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the written word and sometimes it's a sort of cultural thing, but you're always doing that. And so I think from a very early age, I realized I have to take complicated things and make them less complicated and do it in a way that's very succinct because we don't have time to waste, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then when I went to public health school, I realized every public service announcement, every PSA out there is this incredibly belabored, you know, brainstorming and process and research project that tries to determine what is it that's going to get, for example, men who have sex with men to put on a condom. Like, what is it? Is it fear? Is it love? Is it a combination of those two? Is it facts? Is it straight talk? And so I really started to appreciate how important it was. The more I got involved in public health, the, the more I was involved in social movement spaces and I wouldn't say organizing, but activism. And I thought we have very little time and we have to be very convincing. It's almost like advertising. And so I think a combination of all of those things really, really contributed to how and, and why I write. And then how do your parents, how did your parents react when you said you wanted to be a writer? If you ask my mother, she'll say that she always knew I wanted to be a writer and that I was always going to be a writer, that she remembered it when I was a kid, that I would ask the teachers for permission to sit out of class just to write plays and things. Oh, that is so cute. I think she's exaggerating. I believe that happened once, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she remembers it better than I do. I wanted to write screenplays and my parents have always, always been supportive of almost everything I've wanted to do. And I can't think of an example where it's a no, but um, I, I think because I started writing fiction after I already had another career and I had a you know savings account, which my parents were very like, you have to own your home, like, this is very important. Mm -hmm. So that the fact that like I was financially stable and then took on writing, gave them peace of mind. So I never saw a, oh my God, what if this doesn't work? Mm -hmm. I never felt that pressure from them. I think they were all very excited and they couldn't be happier. And when I finished Babylon, because I write so much about, I borrow so much from our lives growing up in it. Mm -hmm. um, again, the outlines. So I always felt like they're just the outlines. If you actually see it, mom, you're, it's not you. <laughs> but, but I said, I want you to read it after I they bought the book after Astra did. So I want you to read it first before we publish it, because if there's something that makes you uncomfortable, I will change it. And she's very kind of you. Yeah. And she said, well, I really like my parents. <laughs> she said, eh, that's very nice. I had my parents on speakerphone. She said, that's, they both said, that's very nice, but you don't have to ask us for permission for anything. You know, you live this life too. So if something of it is of use to you, please use it and don't ask us for permission again. And I said, okay, but will you still read it just to be safe? She said, I'll read it when it's out. And when it came out, my parents would call me every morning in the first week of it. And my mom said, I read your, my father 
reads the paper every single day, but will not pick up a book. It's just not his thing. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. have. And so he, my mom said, we laughed all night. And I said, why? She said, because we see who's in this book. We know who you're talking about. And so she would read a chapter of the book to my dad every night until they finished it. That is it. so yeah. sweet. That is so, so precious. Yeah. That's great. Um, but there is this famous Spanish dicho that goes, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. Help us understand who you are by telling us who your people are. Yeah. So, hmm. My, my family and friends are all, I think, very honest and caring people. A lot of storytellers, a lot of performative folks, and lots of readers in my life. And my partner is one of the most avid readers I know. He's super patient, grounded, human, very Gus-like. Mm -hmm. and, and my children are, if, you know, they're in drag all the time. I mean, they're just real, real performance. So I have sort of a mix of, of that. I would say that I I'm surround myself with people who are in some way, shape or form, all artists, either they're dancers or musicians or writers or editors. And so that keeps my ear to the ground about what's out there. And I think encourages me to keep going and to also be creative. So there's a bit of that. Sounds like you have a strong tribe with your partner, kids and parents. When did you first realize you were queer? About five minutes ago. No, no, I believe when I was, you know, in elementary school, I was like, hmm, something's, something's different here. Something is going on. But I realized I had an attraction for other boys and, and guys when I was in, probably when I, I couldn't deny it anymore, it was the end of high school and for sure in college. Mm -hmm. But I think the, and I'm gonna draw a distinction here between gay and queer. I think the, it wasn't until my 20s or so that I started to see how all of these systems were related. Some of that divide and conquer stuff I was telling you about earlier or talking about earlier and how to be queer really is to consider how all of these systems are affecting us at the same time, right? And to learn about ACT UP and mm -hmm. to see how you know, sort of empowering it can be to organize and push back and to make demands of government. That is, I think, when I was like, oh, shoot, okay, there's some potential in this gayness to actually be political and queer. And uh, yeah, but to keep it simple, it was probably somewhere in elementary school where I was like, oh, that guy, Paul, is cute. <laughs> Shout out to Paul. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then when were you in your first queer space? So first queer space, I... When I was a kid, I used to, my, I worked at the U.S. Open, oh, the, wow. the tennis tournament. Who won that year? Um, Do you remember? Yeah, so it was two years in a row. I think Sampras won both years and Steffi Graf won both he years. Yeah, I guess he once and Chang once, I believe. I remember Michael Chang. Yeah. That's right. Right, and I think Steffi beat uh, Monica once, and I can't remember the other time. But I'm not 100% sure. Maybe Sabatini won one of those years. Anyway. The point is that my dad has all my life worked as a server in a restaurant. He would say waiter. He doesn't go by that server. <laughs> and so I was always in restaurant spaces. And guess what? We gay people work in restaurant spaces a lot. And the, the actors, the dancers, the models. And I remember at the US Open, it's this two week gig, but everyone wants those jobs because you make a lot of money. And I worked in a kitchen and then also selling like ice cream once one year. And so I was just, there were so many gay guys there. And I thought, oh, wow, 
this space is pretty gay. He's, yeah. So I, I would say maybe that was the first time it, uh, and then in, in high school, I would sneak away. There was one gay bar in Long Island that I had heard about. If Don't ask me what the name of it is. I can't remember. But, you know, we'd all go out, friends, and then I would drive my friends home or split up. Be like, yeah, I'm going to bed. I'm really tired. And I'd get my parents' car or then drive to this place on Jericho Turnpike and sneak in. No one really cared. Yeah. And then just kind of like nervously walk around and like, like I would be trembling. <laughs> I'd be trembling and I'd have like this drink in my hand that I couldn't even like hold. And I think I did that a few times. Yeah. Were you approached by anyone? Oh, like, all do you the remember time. any of those interactions? Yeah, I never went home with anyone from those places, but I do remember a lot of men, older men, always kind of like walking past me and like, you know, sort of putting their hands on my back or yeah. my neck or just, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't absolutely egregious, but it was a little bit like that. How do you try to get your kids to care about working class issues? I talk about them all the time, yeah. as much as possible. I probably, it probably annoys them. And I can still talk about my own, like my experiences and how I grew up. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, yeah. And so it's funny. I have this thing where whenever I lose my cool with my kids, I'm like, okay, Daddy was having a moment. He grew up working class, you know, stress. It was very stressful at home. So I managed stress very differently than you all need to. Don't worry about it. We're going to be fine. And they're just like, it's okay, Daddy. Don't worry. That is so sweet. Out of curious, how old are they? 11 and 8. 11 and 8, Mendito. That's so sweet. I'm curious, both in the town of Babylon and in the people who report more stress, there is this theme of unions and worker organizing and worker rights. Um, I work for a labor union, um, Sergio and I. We live here in D.C. and work for social justice organizations. And I like that you incorporate these type of issues because they don't feel like an afterthought. Why is it that you feel that we need to include these stories um, as part of your narratives? What are you trying to tell us by incorporating the justice aspect? That these, the personal and the political, are you cannot pull them apart. You know that sort of thing where uh, saying people use all the time, they'd be like, well, Socially, I'm liberal, but fiscally, I'm conservative. I'm like, well, then you don't understand how the fiscal works yeah. because it's the fiscal chokes out the, the social. These things are indistinguishable from each other. And so that is how I live my life. I don't, I, the, the personal is very political to me. I talk to all of the people in my life and I surround myself, maybe to, to add to the previous question, I surround myself with people who are very political, left of center. And I, we are always thinking about how our how the the world outside plays in our own relationships. I mean, you can't have a world that's misogynistic and then think a heterosexual couple is going to not have drama there. You know, like that that you don't walk into the house and then suddenly you're like, well, I hear I'm a completely open-minded, liberated feminist man, right? No, you walk into the space we all do with those things, and we have to constantly be peeling off the misogyny and the racism and the classism and the self-hate. And so it's an ongoing struggle. And I think it it's a disservice to a protagonist not to have those concerns because it it doesn't make them particularly realistic to me. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't more, there aren't people in this world who are just apolitical or who are less interested in politics, but Eduardo is not that person. And so- yeah. and One quick question about the book. So just because this came up in the, the, the short story of Comrades with the with the whole dating thing. And Sergio and I were at ends here. I thought it was Gus who was on dates or like navigating. And I yeah. know it was Eduardo. <laughs> okay, so I lost. He pointed to Sergio. It was Eduardo. So, uh, I mean, it was the Eduardo 
character. Mm-hmm. And can I tell you where that story yeah, came yeah, from? Yeah, please, please, please. The great story, by the way. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, I have, like I've told you before, I've been with my partner for 20 something years. We had the sort of the privilege in a way of starting together. And when I was 21, I wasn't who I am politically, emotionally, financially, sexually, who I am today. And neither was he. And I think that if I were on a dating app today and I saw my partner of 20 years ago, I'd be like, swipe, le- you know, swipe away. Yeah, he's, he's hot. But like, mm, politically, he's a little bit too centrist for me. Or, or that's what I might yeah. be thinking today. But I might have thought that of myself too. And so I have friends in my life who are my age and... They're still out there trying to meet the right person, a partner. And, you know, they would come over for dinner or something. And we'd be like, okay, let's look. Oh, yes, swipe away. Oh, that sounds a little racist. Oh, I don't think I agree with that. Oh, look what he likes to do with his free time. Or look what she... And so we were at some point realizing that I... Wow, we've become really unforgiving. And I don't disagree. I don't disagree with the motivations for swiping away. I would do it too. But when... I, I realized there's no room in at middle age to be like, we'll grow with this person, yeah. right? Like maybe we'll figure it out yeah. with time. There's that grace doesn't seem to exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not lamenting it. I'm just saying it was an observation. So then I got to thinking, huh, if I divorced today, mm-hmm. would I have to start from scratch? Or could I go on a dating app and just be like, these are my 27 most important political positions. Mm-hmm. And if we don't match, get out of my way. Yeah. And so that's where that idea came from. Yeah. Well, now we're going to move on to a little game called Las Rapiditas. Las Rapiditas. So in this section, Sergio will ask you a total of 10 questions, and you'll need to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Don't overthink. Mm. Just answer as honestly as you can. Now, Alejandro Barrera, are you ready? She, oh, yes. <laughs> Thinking back, what was the first book that, you, that got you in your feelings? The Count of Monte Cristo. What's the weirdest thing you've Googled for the sake of research while writing a book? Uh, the boy I had a crush on elementary school. If your book had a soundtrack, which three songs would definitely be on it? What Have I Done to Deserve This by Pet Shop Boys featuring Dusty Springfield, Little Red Corvette Prince, and A Different Corner, George Michael. What did you do with your first events? A steak medium rare and a slightly dirty gin martini with three olives. As a writer, what does success look like to you? Longevity. What is your favorite word? I like reciprocity. Linguistically, I like the way it sounds. And I also like what it means. What book did you read that you wish you had written? The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison. If you weren't a writer, what would you be doing? I would like to be a speech writer or a political researcher for a good politician. What is one of your hot takes, unpopular opinions? The Lady Gaga movie with Brad Cooper was terrible. Your book is a Dada Ninja movie. Who do you cast to play Eduardo and Gus? Eduardo has to be a completely unknown. And Gus, I like that guy, the British actor. Um, he was in God's Own Country and he played Prince Charles in The Crown. Oh, I, yeah. He's, he's like, he's so good. He's such a good actor. And it's funny, I, don't, I saw a picture of him and I was like, yeah, he's fine. But the, when he's on the, the stage or on the screen, I'm like, he's so sexy. Mm-hmm. Oop, that was question number 10. Thank you so much for playing. <laughs> I also thought that Shallow was, uh, or whatever, the, the Star, Star is Born, Born was a bad movie. I disagree with the both of you. I saw A Star <laughs> is Born and I went home and immediately bought the soundtrack and listened to it for two weeks straight. I think it's fantastic. Can I, I would like to uh, explain yourself. A little bit. I'd yeah, like to explain please. myself, even though you said please. I shouldn't have to. 
I watched that with my partner in like eight parts because he kept falling asleep. And recently, this summer for the first time. And I was looking forward to it because I like Gaga. Okay. Mm -hmm. I yeah, think she's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I don't, I think Bradley Cooper is overrated, but I think Gaga is fantastic. And I was rooting for her and no one was bad in it, but it was a movie where you could see they're working really hard to act. And they're like, look, we're acting. Mm -hmm. And so there was nothing there. It didn't feel particularly uh, sincere, honestly. But I didn't have a bad time watching it. It's just that when you, this is my problem with awards and standards in society is that they're really low. And so if you are gonna put something up there and say it is the best of the best of this year, then it has to meet certain marks. Like album of the year should be darn good. Exactly, yeah. You know, best actors should be like just an unimpeachably great performance. It can't have all of these things where I'm like, Actually, you can see the acting. You shouldn't see the acting. Mm -hmm. um, a boy, you're for, like you Googled. A oh, yeah. So for Babylon, I wrote the Jeremy character, who is the high school boyfriend, the secret boyfriend of a, a year or two. That never happened in my life. See what I mean? I'm a fiction writer. Uh, but I know, right? People really wanted that to be true. But I did remember a boy in elementary school, seventh or eighth grade. And we had kind of a moment, mm -hmm. a couple of moments. Yeah. And I, we stayed friends. There was no bad blood, nothing like that. We, we stayed friends uh, through high school, but we lost touch by the end and I never talked to him again. And I thought of him as I was writing Jeremy. Not because I felt strongly about him, but because I needed a visual to go with what I, and so I looked him up to see where is he? I wonder what he looks like if I could, you know, use a picture from the internet to then imagine adult Jeremy, whose name wasn't Jeremy, by the way. And I found out where he lived. And what he, and I had a he wasn't on the internet because we're in those years right. I was graduated from high school in 1997, so all, I think all of us 43 or 42, 43 year olds are mostly not. We we miss the Facebook and the and so half of us are, half of us aren't. So I couldn't find him anywhere, but I did find some records of what he'd been up to, and I incorporated those into the writing of Babylon. One of the things I love about your writing and that you do in both books. Um, is your cultural references. And this one, you talk about Annie Cohen, The Real Housewives. Ugh. You talk about Madonna. And um, do you also enjoy these things? Like, because I actually think it's so relatable because they're so current. And I was yeah. like, oh, I love those things. Yeah. I, I love Annie Cohen. Yeah. Um, but I also love Madonna. Uh, there's a number of artists that you reference. So yeah. I think it's really great. Yeah. But I'm wondering, like, are you also a fan? Yeah. So I'm a huge pop culture nerd. Mm -hmm. I... I, uh, maybe I've fallen off in recent years, but I really do enjoy pop culture. I, I think it, I don't know, it's just, it's fun yeah. and it's, uh, and music in particular, but film as well. I'm a massive Mariah Carey fan. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a, a, a Lambie or what is it? Is a yeah, lamb. I'm not a yeah. lamb, but I am a massive fan and I, I have, a I have a massive respect for her and the things she says and who she is and, uh, her honesty. I, I like all of it. I am not a fan of Andy Cohen, but I want to remain <laughs> friends with you, Sergio. So I don't want to talk too much smack about him because I already talked smack about A Star is Born. I'm willing to love A Star is Born, but I will never love Andy Cohen. Uh, and so I just think he really milks our basest instincts, you know, to make money. And he, I don't like the way he pits women of color against each other or women in general. And he really antagonizes them to the point of violence and then sits back and says, whoa, why are we being so violent? That kind of disingenuous uh, way of being is is, is not my style. Um, 
But I do, I get lost in the YouTube things and I have seen, I get, I watch the housewife fights and sometimes I'm like, fights not, I don't know what, <laughs> because it brings out the thing. Yeah. But you know, I also, for inspiration, when I'm writing, I will spend a lot of time watching award show speeches because there is this unencumbered emotion that happens when these people get on the stage to accept the thing. And that gets my creative juices going. When I see someone who cannot control their reaction, like, okay, let that bit of letting go where you can't control it, mm -hmm. that I find really fascinating. And so I get some of that also when I spend time watching Lisa Renna fight with whoever, or <laughs> not, I, that's the only name I remember. I don't know if she's... Yeah, Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> so we're hitting up close to time, but we want to know what are you currently reading? If you have any recommendations on books or writers to follow. So I'm actually, I, I have this with me because I brought it on the, on the train ride down here. I am reading Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid. I'm a massive Jamaica Kincaid fan. I think she is a brilliant writer. And for all her plaudits, I think she's still underestimated or underappreciated. And I'm really enjoying it. And I'd heard great things about this book. I hadn't read it before. I have in the last year been asked to read more books than ever before. So I haven't really done a lot of pleasure reading. Sometimes those books are pleasurable, but mostly they're like, can you endorse the book, blurb it? And so a lot of my time has been going to there. But I, Lisa Chen is a fantastic writer. Can't wait for her next work. She wrote The Activities of Daily Living. She's also a friend of mine. And Hugh Ryan, who does a lot of uh, kind of queer history, he wrote when Brooklyn was queer and the women's house of detention. He's a fantastic writer, also a friend of mine. Mm. But uh, Chris Gonzalez, um, Clavis Natera, the Pablo Neruda Street, right? I can't remember the name of the title, right? Uh, house on Neruda. I can't remember. She's she, Neruda Park. There we go. Yeah. She's wonderful. And Robert Jones Jr. I cannot wait for whatever he writes next. Disha Filia, the same way. And Melissa Losado Olivo. She wrote Candelaria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just, came, just coming out. Just yeah, come yeah. out. And yeah, so these are some people that are always on my radar. And Justin Torres, if he writes it, I'm going to yeah. read it. Yeah. 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 And where can folks find you? In Brooklyn. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, you can find me at Dro Varela, the, the D-R-O-V-A-R-E-L-A. That's on Twitter, which is uh, looks like it's about to die any day now, but or X, whatever he's calling it now. And Instagram. I think of all the socials, Instagram is probably where I'm, I am most. And then there's that blue sky one. I'm on there too. Um, so before we let you go, we have one final question. Yes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the holiday Dia de los Muertos, but it's a time when we like to celebrate death and the loved ones who have passed. So mm. in an attempt to change our relationship with the inevitable, we like to ask our guests the following question. And please note that this is not meant to be morbid. But Alejandro, let's say that you're tasked with writing your final literary piece of work. And it so happens to be your obituary. You get to control one of the last things people are going to be reading about you. What is that opening line? He wasn't afraid to be wrong. And he was very good at sex. Ooh. Alejandro. Like, see the following people. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alejandro, um, for joining us for our first episode. We are super excited. It was a pleasure chatting with you today. Be sure to follow Alejandro on Twitter and Instagram at Dro Varela. And also be sure to like, follow, comment, subscribe to those Goofies podcasts. Thank you. 